Hello and welcome to our series on Revelation. Today we're looking at chapter 20 and part 1. So today will be a slightly shorter episode because um, the next part of this chapter is quite detailed so I'll be giving more time and attention to that hence why I'm breaking it into a slightly smaller section today. So today may only be around about 10 minutes long. So my apologies but there's good reason for it. Uh, so well, let's get to it then. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 20 and verses 1 to 2. And it reads, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. After Satan's humiliating defeat of all his armies being wiped out by a flesh-rotting plague, I see my commentary and hear my commentary on Revelation chapter 19 verses 20 to 21, his Antichrist and miracle worker being judged and sent straight into the lake of fire, a full thousand years before any other human, Satan is now bound in a great chain to be placed into the abyss for a thousand years. I imagine that Satan is pretty demoralized at this moment, so much so that an angel binds him in the chain. And this angel gets no special description of incredible power or glory or rank. He's just an angel. So either Satan is crushed by Jesus' feet and concedes defeat and allows himself to be bound, or that Satan is bound by the authority of Christ so that a mere angel can wrap Satan in a chain. It is interesting to note the parallelism of verse 2. The dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Firstly, what is interesting to know about Satan being a dragon? I find this interesting as virtually all cultures around the globe have descriptions of dragons being a winged serpent. Draconic creatures are first described in the mythologies of the ancient Near East and appear in ancient Mesopotamian art and literature. It also seems um, uh, odd, but there are lots of old stories of the great winged serpent have been throughout all ancient civilizations throughout all of history, spanning nearly every culture and all of time. Now, I'm not saying that dragons are real, but I am possibly alluding to ancient legends holding truth to a great enemy of man, which is that evil dragon of hellfire, who is Satan. And whatever you may think about dragons and the stuff of legends, one has to ask why the Bible uses the same ancient language to understand something which may be modern, more which sorry, which may be uh, that more modern, sophisticated cultures uh, have long forgotten or understood. So the dragon, the serpent of old, has two names mentioned here, which is interesting, which is the devil and Satan. The word devil in the Greek is diabolos, which means to oppose and to be an adversary, also an accuser and a slanderer. And the term Satan is a Hebrew one. The ideas of Satan really evolved during the height of the Persian Archimenid Empire around 50, sorry, 550 BC and was adopted by Jews living under Persian rule. In Hebrew, the devil became known as Ha-Satan, or Ha being the and Satan being the opposer or adversary. And the term Ha-Satan appears in the book of Job chapter 1. So it's interesting that the devil is called by his Greek and Hebrew name. So that it is clear to both Jew, Gentile and Jewish believers who this old serpent is and his identifying uh, remarks about who this is. So that it's quite clear. If you're a Gentile, then it's Diabolos. And if you're a, a Jew, then it's Ha-Satan. But it's the same creature. The last part of 
verse 2 states that Satan will be bound <coughs> for a thousand years. Now, it's here, actually, that the term millennial rule or millennial reign, the thousand year rule and reign of Christ comes from. Who knew that such a little verse would cause a huge schism amongst all the denominations and in our theologies? This thousand year reign has caused Christians to divide basically into three succinct camps with a myriad of variations in each camp, which I'm not going to go into detail, but I'll just go into details of the three basic camps. We have premillennialism. This is basically what this commentary stands from. And this, this is a doctrine of the prophesied thousand year reign, which will begin with the second coming of Christ. In other words, Christ must come then comes the millennial reign of Christ. So hence why we are in the pre-millennial reign at the moment. or well, not pre-millennial reign, but we're in the pre-millennial moment of history. The second um, interpretation is known as amillennialism. And this is a belief of a golden age or paradise that will occur prior to the final judgment of God and the eternal world to come. So again, there's quite a lot of transition and ideas that are quite similar to premillennialism, but it's a lot more vaguer. Um, whereas premillennialism is very precise; it likes to have timelines, it likes to make things clear. Whereas amillennialism is a lot more vaguer. That yeah, there will be this golden age, but it's not determined if it will really be a thousand years and when it will happen. No one really knows, but you know, it will happen before the final end time judgment. <coughs> And the third one is post-millennialism, and this sees Christ's return as occurring after the millennial, i.e. the millennium being the golden age of the church, which they would say we are in now. <coughs> so, obviously, this commentary is taken from a pre-millennial point of view, but even here there are quite a few different schools of thought. Um, some believe that there will be a taking away of the church before the tribulation begins, and this taking away is known as the rapture. Other schools of thought believe in a mid-trib rapture. Others, like myself, tend to prefer to what is known as classic premillennialism, which is where there is the resurrection of the dead at Jesus' return, as well as a rapture for the living at the same time. And it is known as classic premillennialism, as this is what the early church and the very early church fathers believed. Although not all believed in classic premillennialism, um, the whole premillennial model became known as chiliasm, uh, and, thus, and thus this type of thinking was actually disbanded by the Second Ecumenical Council in AD 381. Gosh, just to add more um, problems to the mix there. Why was this? Simply put, the early church thought that Rome was the Antichrist B system. But when Rome through Constantine became the friend of the church and embraced her, it was deemed wise to stop biting the hand that was helping the church. So the idea of Rome being the evil bad guys was dropped and then the church shifted to an amillennial and postmillennial stance. However, when the church went through terrible darkness it, throughout history after that, the Christians always seemed to switch back to a premillennial viewpoint. Maybe at that council they should have determined that actually we'll stick to our current theology, but we won't think that Rome is the beast anymore. <clears throat> that probably would have been a better way of addressing it because we've got all kinds of problems today over this. But I don't think it would really make any difference. People still believe what they believe. So, you know, what can you do, right? So another thing we need to address about the thousand year reign is when did the con when and where 
did the concept come from? Was it first mentioned here in Revelation 22 or was it already an understood concept? It was actually a Jewish concept that stated when the Messiah would return, he would usher in a Sabbath rest for the world. Now, although there was varying schools of Jewish thought on this, some Jewish scholars believed, according to Psalm 90 verse 4, a day was as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And so from this psalm, they concluded that there would be 6,000 years uh, for the reign of man, six being the number of man, and then the Messiah would usher in a reign of peace for a thousand years during the seventh thousandth year, seven being the perfect number and thus the number of God and the seventh day being the day of rest. So the concept of a millennial reign was not something the Christians came up with. Rather, it was a Jewish concept that was developed likely during the intertestamental period where eschatology was developed to quite a sophisticated level. Revelation 20 verse 3, And he, the angel, threw him, that Satan, into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So here Satan is placed into the abyss, the deep and seemingly bottomless pit, to be held until the end of the millennial reign. And at the end of the thousand years, he will be allowed out again to test the hearts of men, to lead to the final Gog-Magog war, and then Satan and all mankind from all time to be judged. Those in the Lamb's Book of Life get to live on the new heaven and new earth, <coughs> and uh, those not found in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast alive into the lake of fire where they will burn for all eternity and the devil will be thrown in also. This abyss Satan is placed in is likely uh, Tartarus, which is mentioned in 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6, which is a requote from the book of Enoch, where the evil and rebellious angels that had sex with women, as written in Genesis 6, were held to be grievously punished. Tartarus was the deepest part of the great abyss, the place reserved for the worst of the evil angels, according to ancient tradition and the book of Enoch. So this will where be Satan will be held for a thousand years before he's released again, before there's the big end time judgment which then he has thrown himself into the lake of fire at the end. <clears throat> now, all this stuff about Book of Enoch and church tradition and, and ancient Jewish tradition, I'm not stating this to be, to be the case, but I deemed it worth a mention from a point of historical interest that it may be of some note. Another point of interest is that it's essentially important that Satan is locked in the belly of the earth to fulfill scripture and to humiliate the proud old serpent. To have Satan in the belly of the earth means that he is under the feet of all those who walk upon the earth and thus Satan becomes the footstool of Christ and all the saints. We walk the walk of victory and trample that old devil under our feet. Romans 16.20 And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The word for crush in this verse or bruise in other translations come from the Greek comes from the Greek word suntrido, a word that significantly presents the notion of trampling the devil under our feet. Luke ten nineteen, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now although these verses are often used to denote spiritual authority, uh, which we have over the devil, which is true, it will also be a literal fulfilment during the millennial reign of Christ. Hebrews 10.13, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool.
And this passage refers to Jesus who will have this passage fulfilled during the thousand year reign. But when the new heaven and the new earth are created, Satan and all his followers, demonic, angelic and human, will be forgotten about forever. So as I said, uh, today's one will be a little bit shorter, so I'm going to end it there because we have to go on into the resurrection of the dead, which comes up in verse 4. And that's quite a big subject and I don't just want to gloss over it because it's such a fundamental point to my whole commentary and to, excuse me, all Old Testament understanding, Old Testament revelation and the teachings of Jesus. And therefore I need to go into this quite detailed and hopefully through that you will see why this commentary takes the stance that it does, which is premillennial and uh, and that that I don't believe so much in a rapture, but actually it's all about the resurrection of the dead and those that are left alive at the time of Christ's coming will be also transformed in the inkling of an eye and that's what we call the rapture. And you'll see why I place it here in the book of Revelation and you'll see why, how it's very biblical that it has to be here as well. So hopefully um, we'll get that done soon. I've got a lot coming up over the next couple of weeks, so I'll try to get the next part out pretty soon. So until next time, God richly bless you and thank you for following these podcasts and I hope they've richly blessed you as they've blessed me by writing them. God bless you all. See you again soon. Bye-bye.